Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Hello and good morning, and you're very welcome to today's Signpost webinar. We hope you're keeping safe and well wherever you're joining us from this morning. This week, over 200 scientists, advisors, farmers and representatives from the agri-food industry and the public sector gathered in County Wexford to hear the latest on water catchment science. The international conference, which was organised by the Chagask Agricultural Catchments Programme, looked at 11 themes ranging from soil fertility to water policy. And we're delighted to welcome one of the speakers at that conference, Professor Patrick Drohan, who is a world-leading scientist in catchment management from Penn State University in the United States. Good morning, Patrick. You're very welcome to the Signpost webinar. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. You're very, very welcome. We're delighted delighted to have you here this morning. And Pat Murphy, good morning to you. Good morning. Pat, you're going to help us with some questions later on. Yeah. Um, so, Patrick, um, you're you're in Ireland for the week, or maybe maybe a little bit more. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in Penn State University and uh, what brings you to to Ireland uh, in terms of your your international work? So, I've been uh, running a study abroad course through various places I've worked since 2001 that looks at the coevolution of land ownership, agriculture, and soil management, land use management. So, Patrick, we'll hand over to you, and uh, we will chat to you at, at the end of your presentation. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, so, welcome today. I'll be speaking a little bit about the context of Pennsylvania ag as it relates to uh, catchment management. You're looking here at a picture of our Chesapeake Bay watershed, which is uh, the primary watershed that most of our subwatersheds uh, in Pennsylvania feed into, our, our largest being the Susquehanna River Basin. This is an example of a typical landscape you would see in Pennsylvania uh, in the Ridge and Valley Physiographic Province, which is where most of the Susquehanna River Basin feeds into the Chesapeake Bay. And you can see the scale of agriculture is not that unsimilar to what you see in Ireland. Uh, the primary difference being there's a lot more uh, arable ag that we practice. The state is made up into different physiographic regions, which means there are differences in the vegetation, the geology, and the soils. And these bring about different suitabilities or limitations for agriculture. Uh, on the upper right here, you see an example of the plateau soils. And on the lower right here, uh, that landscape with the Susquehanna River here uh, coming out, moving into the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Uh, there's a lot of relief in Pennsylvania. Uh, the primary differences in the soil suitabilities, along with relief, really will be the geology. And so the soils in this part of the state are heavily influenced by limestone in the valleys, making them very good for agriculture. Um, and then the soils on this part of the state are very influenced by sandstone and shale, which do not make them very suitable for ag. There are also many drainage problems in this part of the state. Looking from the air again, you see an example of that valley of Ridge Province with the ag confined down here in the valleys and the ridges being comprised largely of forested areas managed by the state. These are important watershed recharge zones uh, and they're actually protected uh, under state ownership now. And there you really get an idea of how flat that plateau is, uh, it's really a, a pool table or billiard table, table in size by river systems. 
Not much ag goes on up here. Uh, there are some small areas, though, that would be typically in some type of pasture or, or mainly small row crop. The state has been influenced by glaciation at different times, and that glaciation moved in from the northeast and the northwest and really reached the extents you see here in uh, these colors. Some materials washed out further down. This is the Susquehanna River moving down into the bay. You would have the Delaware River over here. Uh, so where you have glaciation, you have a situation like Ireland where it can become a very unpredictable landscape in terms of the drainage or the soils and their suitability for ag. It really depends on the behavior of that glacier when it was uh, moving in or melting away uh, or the effect that glacier had on creating a poor drainage condition. This is a very interesting figure that shows the differences one will see in the climate. And you have two numbers here depicted. The lower number is the growing degree days, and the upper number uh, is the moisture surplus. And uh, this shows two important concepts here. As you move really from the north central to the southeast, you see the effect of uh, soils getting drier, but the growing season getting longer. And this will be an important factor to remember as we talk about agriculture and uh, uh, differences in yield and profit. Uh, this map shows the distribution of the forested areas in the greenish colors and the agricultural areas in the yellow. And the uh, yellow color here uh, really is your, your hay areas. Uh, you do not see a lot of row crop at this scale. The row crop would be a brownish color. But all of this yellow would be some type of hay or pasture type of system. So quite extensive uh, agricultural system heavily relying on hay or pasture. Uh, these are a set of figures that give you an idea of where the types of ag are in the state. And uh, this one in the lower right will be consistent between the two slides. And that gives you an idea of the, the, the farms that are making the most money. And then by looking at these other figures, you can get an idea of what types of ag might be driving that. And a question to think about throughout this discussion is, uh, is that the type of ag or is it that fact that that climate was very suitable in this southeastern part of that state? And that just brings a perfect convergence of lots of different types of ag in that area. So you can see where a lot of our beef cattle is concentrated, broilers, swine, uh, horse. And then we move on to the next one. Our field crops are really distri distributed throughout the state. Um, you can see here uh, we have quite a lot of mushroom production in the state, but it's confined really indoors in the southeastern part. Uh, vegetable farms, again, scattered throughout the southeast, some in the western part of the state, quite a few around Center County here. This is where the main university is, and so a heavy concentration of population there to support. Uh, you're seeing more and more vegetable farms in the state uh, move in, and actually uh, several of those are transitioning from dairy into vegetable and that's partly because of the cost of moving a lot of our vegetable crops from the West Coast of the United States. And then our greenhouse and nursery operations really are centered on our major population centers. So this concentration here is really feeding the Pittsburgh area. This is the demographic that shows the concentration of population in the state. Uh, and so the higher the peak or the more orange the color, the more people. And so that Susquehanna River Basin watershed really is in this part of the state feeding the Chesapeake Bay in this direction. Uh, this would be the Delaware River Basin over here. 
and that does not drain into the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Uh, this is the effect of Philadelphia. Uh, this is Pittsburgh. And this would be Scranton, Wilkes-Barre. And then there are several major cities down through the Ridge and Valley and Piedmont in here. And this is the state college area where Penn State is. These are the major watersheds in the state. So we have the Delaware and the Susquehanna. Um, so these waters flow into the Delaware River. This would be New Jersey over here. Uh, Susquehanna River Basin from uh, New York above through Pennsylvania feeds into Chesapeake Bay along with the Potomac River drainage and then this uh, area of the Elk and Northeast watershed. The Ohio River Basin here feeds into the Ohio River and then the Great Lakes Basin feeds into New York State or the known as the Genesee Watershed. And again, thinking about this effect of population on these areas, you see a lot of influence on water quality where you have large population centers. So the Ohio River Basin over here is heavily influenced by Pittsburgh. And then the effect of Philadelphia over here heavily influences the Delaware River Basin. So agriculture in Pennsylvania is comprised about 52,000 farms across 7.3 million acres and uh, is valued at about $84 billion uh, providing about 280,000 jobs and about $10.9 billion in earnings. Uh, to just give you some brief stats here, uh, typical farm size of 139 acres. Uh, we have about 7.3 million acres in production. Uh, large amounts of this in chicken and broilers now over time as the poultry industry has really taken a foothold in this area and Delaware. Uh, we're seeing lots of milk production in the state. That's one of our primary areas. Uh, quite a bit of cattle production now. And uh, the feed that uh, animal ag operation, we see lots of corn production with a high value. But we also have a lot of corn also moving towards other commodities such as ethanol production. Soybeans are another primary product we use for feed uh, production. Uh, quite a lot of hay production and hay silage for that uh, support of that animal agricultural industry. And then believe it or not, mushrooms are a very large uh, uh, crop in the state too. I'll show that in a second here. Uh, historically, Pennsylvania had a lot of fruit production early on and still does, but a lot of it's really focused in the South Central part of the state in Adams County. And like I said, you're starting to see more of the vegetable crop production uh, start to take off. Here you see the sheer quantity of the mushrooms produced. Mushrooms have for a long time been a primary product of Pennsylvania, uh, providing an enormous amount of uh, money to the state uh, in the millions and millions of dollars. So more on the landscapes that we're going to be talking about in the watershed today. Uh, again, another example here along the Susquehanna River of a typical small uh, uh, operations supplying mainly grain, uh, soybean and corn for a, a dairy operation. Here you see an example of a field in some conservation tillage type of situation after harvesting. In the background, you see some poultry barns. Conservation uh, practice here with a grass waterway and a combined buffer strip moving into a riparian zone. Here you see a farmer from the Chesapeake Bay watershed walking along a floodplain uh, that would feed uh, through this riparian buffer and it's been recently planted with trees to protect it. Notice that the floodplain is actually quite flat. 
this is a very common feature of a lot of floodplains feeding uh, lowland areas near agricultural operations. And it's largely a result of erosion from the uplands when this area was cleared back in the early settlement period. There really aren't many natural riparian floodplains, if any, really at all left in the state. A lot of them have been affected by this uh, uh, upland erosion, and you have these legacy sediment conditions in the lower parts. The upper ridges in the uh, uh, Ridge and Valley province, where most of the Susquehanna River Basin feeds into the Chesapeake Bay, are, like I said, protected by forested areas and harbor a lot of the, uh, the waters that feed into the bay. Uh, these are very small upland watershed systems, small stream systems, um, uh, most in forested areas today, uh, and they feed into these lower areas of the bay. So collectively, managing these landscapes as a whole is a very important concept to think about when thinking about how the water quality here in the bay changes in relation to that long upland transect into the, the ridge systems. The bay is a very valuable uh, uh, recreational, uh, economic uh, uh, resource for the state for tourism and commodities produced. Uh, there are lots of different fisheries in the bay, most famous being the, the blue crab and the oysters here. Uh, massive economic effect for the region from the fisheries uh, and the tourism in, in the bay. One of the primary catchment challenges in the bay, uh, especially in the Susquehanna River Basin, is manure management. And Pennsylvania uh, provides quite a lot of manure uh, to the landscapes uh, in support of an organic fertilizer. We have the second largest number of dairy farms in the state at about 5,000. And uh, there's a lot of feed produced locally in these areas uh, to support that uh, operation. Uh, the feed will often be uh, used regionally within areas of that operation. Uh, it's not often transported very, very far. Um, a lot of our feed crops for animal ag in the state are actually used in the state. Um, a lot of our dairy farms in Pennsylvania are family owned. And uh, um, this is a very important aspect of pride for uh, farmers in the state. It also uh, makes managing these operations very difficult from the advisor or regulatory perspective because you have lots of individuals you're working with, not unlike Ireland. Here you see an example of a poultry operation. In these situations, management can be pretty challenging uh, because a lot of the operation is actually set up by the poultry industry. The farmer on the end is really just in charge of managing that manure produced from this operation. And this presents a tremendous challenge because this concentration of animals in a small area results in an enormous amount of manure production uh, in this location. So figuring out what to do with that manure so you don't uh, uh, affect the water quality in the streams near this operation or, or down watershed is a primary challenge we're facing now in the Bay. Now, what a farmer has to do in Pennsylvania specifically uh, in terms of managing nutrients uh, revolves around the size of their operation first. And this is just an example of a simple float chart that will identify that farmer in their operation into one of two initial ca uh, categories. Uh, a confined animal feeding operation or a confined animal operation. And depending on how you answer the question of whether you associate with one of these two uh, situations, 
you may need other types of plans, such as a nutrient management plan uh, or a manure management plan. In fact, at certain sizes of your operations, you may need special permitting that requires quite a bit of paperwork to carry out. Uh, nutrient management plans are filed locally with our soil and water conservation districts, and you will need the assistance of an individual to help you complete those plans. Uh, manure management plans do not have to be filed locally. They can be kept on farm, but they have to be available uh, if someone asks for them. Uh, these nutrient management plans uh, uh, are not online unless someone voluntarily puts them online into a database we have known as PA One Stop, and I'll talk about that more in a second here. Um, PA One Stop is a database that's run through Penn State in cooperation with the state, and it's really a place where farmers can go to get a lot of assistance in, in figuring out how to complete a nutrient management plan or a manure management plan and a place where they can upload this information if they want to. This is voluntary. You do not have to do this in the state. There are a lot of data privacy protections in Pennsylvania uh, for farmers um, on purpose. And uh, these also present challenges for people trying to help figure out how to solve problems in the Bay because accessing just how much activity might be occurring on a farm can be very challenging. There are 66 counties in Pennsylvania, and that information on nutrient management planning is housed in those individual offices. And you literally have to go to an office, ask to see the folder with that information to see what might be happening on one farm. Uh, one of the other major challenges in our catchments uh, has been climate change, and this is an example of recent flooding in Annapolis. Uh, this flooding is becoming more and more common as storm intensity uh, increases. Uh, and how we manage this storm intensity change over time in relation to the movement of soils and uh, the materials uh, carried in water along with those sediments becomes a real challenge. So we're seeing problems with storm runoff like you are in Ireland and figuring out how to deal with that storm runoff locally is, is becoming quite a challenge. Where Penn State's located, you've seen a lot of our municipalities uh, actually start to size up the infrastructure used in urban areas to capture stormwater because of the sizes of the storms that, that have been changing over the last 15 years. Um, here you see an example of uh, 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 the Susquehanna River following one of those major river flooding events associated with runoff. And you can see the sediment suspended in, in the water column. So roughly Pennsylvania has about 27,000 miles of stream that are being harmed by pollution now. And those primary sources of pollution uh, associated with runoff are abandoned mine drainage, agriculture, and stormwater runoff. And uh, a lot of that mine runoff is really associated in that western part of the state uh, uh, where you saw the uh, Allegheny Appalachian Plateau. And the agricultural runoff is really associated more so with the central and eastern part of the state where the, the soils are more suitable for agriculture. So more than 90% of what Pennsylvania needs to do in terms of meeting Chesapeake Bay pollution cleanup mandates really stems from nitrogen pollution reductions that have to take place in the Bay. We do a lot of water quality monitoring with scientists, but also with uh, citizen scientists who are volunteers. And this citizen science program is becoming an ever increasing part of helping to gather data um, and also educate young people who then later on grow up to have a greater appreciation of the challenges facing the Bay. Um, just to give you a little example of that mine drainage problem, 
Uh, here you see examples of uh, uh, mine drainage moving into a, a river system. And what you see here is really a sediment laden with iron oxides um, that have come from the, the mine waters. Those mine waters have a lot of iron in them in a reduced form. And when that water interacts with the uh, more oxygenated environment, when it comes out of the mine to the river system, that iron changes form and you actually get a pigment like you would see in paint, iron oxide. That's the orange color here. Uh, various ways to deal with this water when it's coming out of the ground have been thought of from passive treatment systems here uh, to actual full-size water treatment systems. Uh, this is quite a big challenge in the state. A lot of this, though, is really centered over on the plateau uh, where the, the coal mining has been associated. We have about 5,500 miles of streams in Pennsylvania that are affected by uh, abandoned mines. Uh, and, and that's ever going to become an ever-increasing challenge for the state. The other uh, real aspect of focus in the Chesapeake Bay watershed has been, um, oh, sorry, Martin, uh, combined animal operations and combined animal feeding operations is what CAFO and, 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 and uh, CAO stand for. Um, soil health is another primary uh, factor we're focusing on in the, in the state of Pennsylvania, like you see in, in Ireland improving soil structure, keeping a live root in the ground, et cetera. Um, and this is certainly going to be an important aspect of meeting the nutrient management reduction goals, especially with the introduction of, of cover crops as a, as a uh, recommended annual practice that farmers uh, help to uh, uh, implement. And uh, primary benefit being uh, preventing nitrate leaching, uh, minimizing soil erosion, adding more organic matter back to that soil system. One of the other big factors of climate that's affecting our agriculture has been changes in temperature over time. And you see here a progressive warming from the southeast moving north uh, in Pennsylvania. And this has had uh, new challenges for us in the form of drought, like you saw in Ireland uh, this past May when I was here. For the same time period you were experiencing drought, we were experiencing drought. Um, this is becoming, a, a, unfortunately, a somewhat annual occurrence, and how we deal with this is, is becoming a problem. The increase in temperature is also forcing, uh, especially fruit growers, to think of new varieties that they have to start planting and to meet these new challenges of, of uh, extended growing seasons, but also unpredictable uh, frost periods early in the season. If you get a, a frost or a freeze associated with flowering, you know you can lose your fruit crop. And this, this becomes a, a big risk factor for a lot of growers. One of the key aspects of managing Chesapeake Bay's water quality really comes in this role that my university plays. And it's, it's a unique model. It's called a land-grant university. And it's very different from the model you see at Cadalton or uh, the four-year schools with their CERT programs. Um, Penn State was really set up as a, uh, or the idea of the land-grant institution was really set up to provide education for all because of the exclusive nature of education in America prior to the land-grant systems. So in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there, there were not a lot of opportunities for the general public to go to schools. And so the idea of the land-grant universities really was one where you could teach uh, agricultural skills to support rural communities, mechanical skills. These are actual pictures of early Penn State students and Penn State barns. Um, but it was also to promote education to better the masses, the populations, uh, 
really help people pr- pursue uh, other professions in life beyond just farming. Inclusiveness was really a primary goal. Uh, President Lincoln, uh, along with uh, Justin Morrell, were the ones who set up what was called the Morrell Act, which really set the stage for the land grants coming about. And these schools in America today have to have agricultural and engineering programs, along with an officer training program for the military that we call ROTC here. Penn State was initially founded there with that one building on a hill in the middle of nowhere. They literally just chose the middle of the state, and it was an agricultural field. Um, It was uh, 1855, it was the Farmers High School, and in 1863, it was actually named a land grant. Uh, In 1953, it became a university. Uh, We do not get a lot of money from the state. Uh, We only get about 9% of our actual operating budget from the state. And uh, Penn State itself, where I work, uh, is not just University Park. We have this collection of campuses around the entire state. So over time, that land-grant mission changed, and we really tried to uh, incorporate uh, different parts of the country following the Civil War. There was a second uh, Morrell Act that brought in the Confederate states. And then over time, you can see here, the system has really grown extensively around the country. So one of the goals of Extension was really to be able to share research findings with the population. And uh, the USDA hired uh, Seaman Knapp as a way to do this, and that's where the idea of the extension program was born. Uh, This was formalized in 1914 under what was called the Smith-Lever Act, and it really set up this partnership with the land-grant universities uh, and and focused largely on helping the rural population, uh, focusing heavily on agricultural issues. Now, one of the things you have to remember is that at this time in the United States, 50% 50% of that population lived in rural, rural areas, and 30% of the, the workforce was simply engaged in farming. Today in our College of Ag, the demographics are very different with about 70% of our students not even coming from an agricultural background, but rather an urban-suburban background. Our extension folks will work heavily with the Chesapeake Bay watershed in order to provide uh, education and support for uh, the public Uh, and the growers in in the watershed. And there's a variety of ways this was done. Like today's signpost talk, we do similar things in the United States and Pennsylvania. One of the other challenges we're facing in the the Bay are differences in the demographics. Um, We're seeing a a heavy influence on cropland conversion nationwide with a lot of that cropland growing towards uh, high density or low density development for residential urban areas. That's the red color you see here on the maps. Um, This change in uh, agricultural land conversion has been increasing over time. Uh, Here you see a zoom in of the Pennsylvania area, and you can see the reds showing that uh, uh, the intensity of conversion to urban areas really is associated with the areas that have existing population centers. This gives you an idea of where farms are distributed throughout the state. And one theme I want you to keep in mind here is this issue of the, the warming climate and the better soils. If we look at changes in agriculture across the state and the value of that ag over time, uh, we're we're seeing like you are in Ireland that the number of farms is going down uh, and to some degree we see loss of acreage in farmland, Uh, but the size of farms is going up and the value of those farms is going up and how much people are making from those farms. Uh, The trend of decreasing farm size mimics what you see see nationwide, 
so I see that trend mimic nationwide. Um, in total, the number of, of benefits that the United States and, and Pennsylvania are still gaining from agriculture mimics what you see here uh, uh, with, you know, large proportion of direct and indirect jobs supported, um, massive amount of money coming from agriculture, and a lot of that uh, income from this farming uh, economy really centered on uh, helping further the economy of the state as a whole. So Pennsylvania as a whole is heavily dependent upon ag as a, as a primary economy, just like Ireland is. Um, most of your farms with a net profit are again in the southeastern part of the state. And again, think about this in terms of that climate. Really, this is a, a, a good soils, good climate uh, a model here supporting this ag. Where we are in relation to other states, uh, we're the sixth largest number of uh, people employed in agriculture. Um, and uh, we have, uh, relative to the rest of the country, quite a lot of producers. Um, but that overall population of producers relative to the state's population is still very small, like Ireland. Like Ireland, a lot of our producers are over 50. That's what you see here. And we still do not have a lot of female farmers, although that number is increasing every year. Um, a lot of those markets are associated with nursery, greenhouse, or the niche uh, agricultural operations focused on uh, markets in urban areas. The value of farmland in Pennsylvania is going up. So our sales in the country rank 19th uh, and our farmland prices are going up. Uh, right now you're looking at about 7,300 per acre. Uh, that's cheaper than the state of New Jersey, but somewhere in Pennsylvania, you can see extremely expensive uh, farmland, you know, uh, $30,000 per acre down here in Lancaster County. Down in the Lancaster County area, you have an incredible intensity of agriculture. Uh, and this is in part uh, because of the community that, that operates down there. Uh, the Amish are a unique community that have been working in this area for a long time. They uh, do not pay taxes to the United States. They are religiously conservative, uh, very, very tight-knit community. They tend not to use modern uh, equipment, uh, electricity, they might use batteries, but they don't use electricity or motors, uh, many of them. Um, and they stay in these very tight-knit communities like you see here in the, in the image. This confined farming with a lot of animals can present challenges for nutrient management in these areas. Um, as a whole, uh, Pennsylvania's farmland return has been improving over time, as you see here. Uh, and this is on trend with the rest of the state or rest of the country. Uh, we obviously don't make as much money as the Midwest. But sustainable intensification has presented us, uh, like Ireland, with a lot of challenges in, in improving water quality. Um, historically, in the country, we've seen the development of laws over time to protect water quality. Uh, our Clean Water Act really was the primary goal, uh, our primary law in 1972, which really added to our water quality improvement. Uh, various amendments in 1977 and 87, 1977 and 87 enhanced that water quality protection. Uh, um, like in Ireland, uh, we even have water quality protection acts now focused on beaches. Uh, and this really is for the protection of coastal recreation issues. Um, one of the unique things about the United States is uh, how federal and state law interacts. 
So Congress enacted the Clean Water Act really to set up this federal system for pollution control, but it left a lot of room to states to make their own laws. And we refer to this as cooperative federalism. And under the Clean Water Act, states can create their own water quality standards more strict than the federal government, but they have to meet the minimum of the federal government. And the same is true for permitting. Um, states also have a lot of leeway in creating their own procedures for administration of these laws and violation handling. So one other aspect of the Clean Water Act is private citizens can, can sue to enforce the Clean Water Act in certain circumstances. So a private citizen in an urban area could sue someone else to uh, uh, try to help the state meet their water quality goals. Um, but if the state has some type of legislation or, an, or I'm sorry, some type of action in the process at that moment, uh, um, they cannot uh, stop that per se. Some focuses on here on the Chesapeake Bay specifically. So here you see the Susquehanna River Basin in Pennsylvania and uh, various other major basins feeding into the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Um, when we look at the area of the entire Chesapeake Bay watershed, you're looking at 16.5 million hectares with over 18.5 million people and over 6.1 million livestock producing manure. So we have about 193 billion liters per day of fresh water flowing into the bay and half of that alone comes from the Susquehanna River Basin. Lots of different pollution challenges in uh, um, the bay itself, uh, especially focused on nitrogen, uh, not just ag, but you have a, a number of other sources that contribute just like in Ireland. And these over time have resulted in large water quality issues, especially tied to uh, loss of dissolved oxygen and fish kills. Um, over time, various monitoring programs have improved in the Bay, and uh, these have started to look very closely at ranking the Bay's health. And here you see an example of one of those uh, report cards, per se, looking at uh, Bay health. Like in Ireland, we practice the four R's of nutrient stewardship, and uh, this can be a very challenging thing to pull off with this model of states' rights in terms of how they administer laws, whether they have stricter laws than the federal government. Um, you can imagine the number of farmers that you're dealing with the entire Chesapeake Bay watershed. And so there's a lot of variability, a lot of complexity to making sure all of these activities happen in a way that actually protects water quality over time. And as we've adapted to changes in the Bay's agriculture and population over time, you've seen different types of legislation and actions start to develop over time, uh, adapting to that need to become more specific or more aggressive in trying to meet water pollution goals. The Chesapeake Bay watershed is, is managed under uh, a number of models here that are used essentially to, to discern how states are meeting their water quality goals. These models focus on air deposition or land use change, uh, agricultural nutrients, uh, and even models looking specifically at the Bay's estuarine area. Uh, there's different types of monitoring that will occur in the Bay. Uh, some of this monitoring will occur at the interface with the tidal zone down here in the lower part of the watershed as the waters are entering the Bay. Um, other aspects of this will occur further up in the watershed, uh, looking at the non-tidal areas. And this monitoring is largely on a monthly basis in both systems with some storm sampling. One of the most significant pieces of legislation was in 2010 when this thing called the total maximum daily load was created. Uh, this was the result of a lawsuit between 
entities in the Bay against the US EPA. Uh, this total maximum daily load limit was added to the Clean Water Act as a provision, which really gives an amount of pollutant that has to be met now. The different states within the Bay um, have to develop their plans and goals for meeting uh, these TMD limits by 2025, and EPA committed as part of this lawsuit to holding them accountable or actually coming up with consequences if these were not met. Together, this is called the Chesapeake Bay or Chesapeake Clean Water Blueprint. Now, over time, as we've tried to meet these milestones, we've seen some successes, but recently, um, perhaps with climate change, sustainable intensification, we've seen some declines in our, our goals being met and cleaning up the bay. And one of the questions comes uh, from what's going to happen uh, if we don't meet this 2025 goal. And so as the, the model is being evaluated over time, one of the ways that the Chesapeake Bay uh, is managed is through assessing what the states are doing to meet their water quality uh, improvements. And so reduction in nutrients really come from installation of best management practices and then inspecting those practices, making sure they're functioning. Um, the total loads that are calculated in the bay are essentially accounted against these BMPs to see where the net balance lies. And one of the challenges comes from all of the states within the bay having a number of different ways of these BMPs being installed or verified uh, some are installed uh, or some are verified on the ground. Some are, are, are verified remotely. It can, it's just a very, very complicated pro process. Um, in the end, we really only have one and a half years to uh, one and a half years left to implement the Bay's goals. And if you look at the report cards here in terms of how we're doing the different states like Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, you see a lot of red here. You know, the red means that the projected loads are more than 25% off the target pollution. And so that's a really insurmountable challenge that we face. And one of the key questions that people are starting to have is, how well is this Bay model working? Uh, and farmers are asking these questions. Uh, we've been paying attention to what's been going on in Europe here and the response, especially of countries like Ireland, to how they might deal with some of the climate change mandates coming out of uh, COP26. Uh, and we start to see effects of our Supreme Court changing what we can do to protect the water quality in the, in the, in the United States. Uh, and again, more questions keep rising. And people are really starting to wonder what will be the consequence of us not meeting these 2025 mandates for the TMDL. We're basically out of time. And so could Pennsylvania be sued? Um, in this case, you know, at the end, we wouldn't really be helping farmers or the citizens. We'd just be making a lot of lawyers wealthier. Uh, this money maybe could go towards new solutions uh, that are used in the field. Uh, the United States is 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 very uh, uh, into suing people, and you can see here the amount of money we spend on lawsuits is phenomenal. Uh, we have a very powerful group within the Chesapeake Bay watershed that is really focused on changing perspectives on how we address this problem now. And, and I think when you face and having to make these changes, all this red shows just all the impaired streams we have in Pennsylvania, not just the Susquehanna River Basin. Uh, this is a, a really uh, phenomenal problem. When we start looking at the entities that manage the watershed, the most powerful group is what's called the Chesapeake Bay Commission. 
And they recently came out with a, a piece that really focused on pointing out that the funding needed to meet the watershed reduction uh, pollutants or goals for watershed pollutant reduction are really underfunded. And there needs to be a way that money can be generated to improve uh, this. And they've come up with this solution of taxing water withdrawals. Now, one aspect of this that, uh, uh, you know, if you step back and think about the big picture, um, taxing water use is one, is one way to go about doing that. Farmer education is one way to go about doing this. Maybe taxing food to raise money for cleaning up the bay is one way to do, do about this. But the norms we use in agriculture every day uh, are, are unique to who we are as people. It's our culture, our religion. We farm the way maybe our parents farmed. Right? We farm maybe the way we were taught at Kadalton College. Uh, but clearly, whether you're in Ireland or the United States, the challenges we face with water quality are, 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 are so complex, maybe we can become paralyzed by indecision. And, and one of the, the things I've been thinking very strongly about recently is, is have we gone too far in the complexity? Um, how do we make it even easier to solve this problem? And uh, that's primary reason why I keep coming back over here is because coming to Ireland gives me these new ideas that I can take back to Pennsylvania, because we, we don't think like the European Union or Ireland. Uh, you know, the federal government might be akin to the European Union and, and the state of Pennsylvania might be akin to Ireland. But the way you govern and what you're allowed to do in, tar in terms of your laws is very different from America. Um, so that just gives you a little bit of, a, of an oversight uh, into the issues here. Um, I can answer some questions now. I know I went a little bit long here, but... Uh, I uh, thank you for the invitation. Thanks, Patrick. No, I really enjoyed your presentation and uh, lovely, lovely shots of of uh, the beautiful Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, I mean, just just on those issues that you raised at the end, you know, the the complexity, and you know, are we are we overcomplicating things sometimes when you know we're looking at the the, the basic problems of nutrient uh, loads within water and i was just looking at some of the water quality figures it it is seemed to be going in the wrong direction if i'm i'm not mistaken in the most recent uh, monitoring reports there for the chesapeake bay so it it does and you, you use the word uh, more aggressive type of of measures that may be needed i mean if you had a free hand in terms of what might be done there and if you had a, a decent budget what what sort of measures would you be looking at introducing we use a model in the united states called entrepreneurial ag like you do in ireland to a degree right business can do what they want to a degree but this has created especially with manure a phenomenal problem too much manure in too small of a place and so if we got rid of the manure that would be a solution we can't get rid of the manure without getting rid of the animal ag. And like Ireland, agriculture defines who we are in Pennsylvania. And so what do we do with that manure when we would be finding a use for it? And so I've been thinking very, very seriously about this idea of energy production and, and better nutrient uh, uh, development from anaerobic digesters. You know, you can actually produce a better soil amendment using anaerobic digesters to a degree if you have a, a multi-input system. But energy production is really a solution that I think could be very useful. And we've been looking at this concept of what's called a manure shed in the Chesapeake Bay watershed with colleagues of mine, Sibin Raj, 
Sherry Spiegel, who works with these government as a real solution to identifying where the manure is concentrated. This is an AFBI in Northern Ireland has been talking a lot about this. And I, I really think a primary solution is to develop a manure market that takes as much of that manure off the landscape as we can. That's an excess of what the soil needs and uh, using that in some way as an energy production. And then I think you have a post-secondary product that can be very valuable. Yeah, there, there is a lot of emphasis on that uh, circular circular bioeconomy here here in Ireland now. Um, just just finally, before we move into the audience questions, you know, what sort of supports are there there for farmers uh, to maybe help somebody to do a new tube management plan? The, the advisory services, uh, are, are they, how freely accessible are they to farmers? So some farmers will have uh, low cost or free access to nutrient management plan assistance, but the majority will need to hire someone called by Crop Advisor to assist with that plan. It's actually that online portal that you saw has a lot of information there can assist with that. Um, the manure management plan is far easier to develop. And you, you can, from what I understand, just develop that on your own in your farm as long as you have it in your kitchen or on the shelf. It's a nutrient management plan that really requires the sign-off at the Soil and Water Conservation District office associated with each county. Uh, but yeah, there is there is a lot of services out there that can provide that assistance, but it, it would be something you probably have to pay some money for. Okay, yeah. No, it is, it, in terms of behavioral change, it is, is it is regarded as a very strong measure to to support and to partner with farmers to, to have a, a strong advisory service in place there to 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 help them to make those changes. Uh, I'm conscious of time, so I'm gonna ask uh, Pat uh, to to maybe go through some of the questions. Yeah, uh, uh, good few questions coming in there. One uh, as okay. uh, that we associate a little bit with, with, with Pennsylvania in some discussions here. Uh, what are your thoughts about fracking effect on water quality or is there any evidence of problems? So I actually did a lot of research looking at the land use change associated with fracking uh, when it was taking off. Um, fracking to some degree is a catch-22. You know, it's an it's a energy resource within your own country. You don't have to go somewhere else in the world to extract energy from there to use it. Uh, I, I personally wish that maybe we had used more of the energy that we're taking from the ground under Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, but that's not necessarily a choice I could make. Um, I think for what you're seeing now in terms of the state regulation, the state is doing the best it can with what it has in terms of trying to keep fracking uh, uh, in a balance with the landscape disturbance. And one thing that we have seen over time is the footprint of fracking has decreased as the technology has progressed. So you're seeing more wells on one pad where they do the drilling. Okay, just a, a question there. How significant are river restoration initiatives in the state? For example, natural floodplains, buffer strips, uh, riffles. What, what level of, of, I suppose, physical uh, uh, interventions are, are taking place around the rivers? Riparian buffer zones are an enormous focus in Pennsylvania. And that's probably one of the primary ones we see now. Uh, others like the runoff attenuation features you hear about being used more often in England and that Chagas is exploring now are, are less common, but are becoming things we're talking about. Okay. Uh, just a, a question in terms of uh, two things around organics. One is soil, soil organic matter trends, and and is that something that's that's focused on in 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 uh, in terms of soil management? And a question in relation to the degree of organic farming in the area. 
organic farming is becoming much more common uh, because there's a higher uh, return you can earn from that. Um, uh, you're seeing with uh, uh, the more adoption of, of no-till farming, for instance, uh, uh, what you're seeing elsewhere in the world with uh, less organic carbon at depth, more this. Uh, but that no-till has been critical for keeping soil in the landscape, uh, and that is heavily dependent upon glyphosate. Um, I saw the question there about glyphosate, and you know, as a catch-22, without glyphosate, I, I worry how much erosion we would have. Um, but there is more and more discussion in the United States about water quality and glyphosate, especially because of the recent uh, research on PFAS, the forever chemical that we're seeing in a lot of our water systems in the country. I, I might ask you to just expand a little bit on that, that I, I suppose, that, that glyphosate dilemma in terms of uh, the consequences of not being able to use glyphosate from an environmental perspective, as well as, as the, uh, any issues that are emerging from the use of glyphosate. So it's, it's, there's a balancing act there. You might, might comment on it. Yeah, so glyphosate has been, has been uh, implicated or shown to result in some weed resistance over time. And, and so it's essentially becoming less effective. That's one problem we're facing. Uh, another concern has been water quality. Is it getting into water quality and contaminating waters? Uh, but the no-till act, you know, you saw the, the differences in the topography in Pennsylvania. The no-till ag is heavily dependent upon glyphosate. Uh, and if, if we can't keep, you know, some root in the ground year round, the soil is not going to be held there. And, and no-till lag is heavily dependent upon using glyphosate to uh, uh, keep that organic material in the ground. Okay. There's a couple of questions in relation to nutrient management. Uh, one, why isn't nutrient management uh, uh, made compulsory for all, all farmers? And, and then just a, a quick explanation of the, of the potential difference between a nutrient management plan and a manure management plan. So a manure management plan is uh, not required to be on file with the local soil and water conservation district office like the nutrient management plan is. Uh, farmers uh, involved in, in animal ag with manure, uh, applying manure on their farm, applying nutrients uh, uh, with animal ag have to have that nutrient management plan. Uh, that, that is required. So all farmers involved in that type of ag have to have it. Okay, and uh, I suppose a, a question there, maybe maybe uh, uh, tongue in cheek a little bit. Should we become more litigious in in Ireland in terms of uh, trying to manage our our environmental objectives? <laughs> you know, I, I think a lawsuit has its place where someone has exhausted all other options. I do not think we've exhausted all other options. I am really into understanding myself why I don't change my behavior sometimes. And I, I am really interested in thinking more about this in terms of, of agriculture. You know, it, you have a farmer who's also a landowner. That landowner sits on a lot of wealth in that land. And some landowners lease a lot of land because they don't have a lot of land. Um, so there's different degrees of economic security that even what you would call a farmer has. And then if you place all these requirements on top of them in terms of, of meeting regulations for environmental quality, it can become overwhelming. Yeah. So a lot of what I'm thinking about lately is trying to spread the need to change what we're doing more across society as a whole. 
and maybe to some degree taking farmers out of the equation, like with the manure issue and the bioreactors and the energy production, if we're going to allow the invisible hand of Adam Smith to wave its way and for business to do what it does, you have to accept the fact there might be imbalances that develop. Well, how do we get that system back in balance? Maybe this is where government can step in and find a solution like energy production from manure um, as a way to help meet that goal. Because if that culture values agriculture as central to who it is in its, its economy, you can't just take it away, right? That's what the effect of overregulation might have. Okay. When you destroy are, the people. Patrick, we're, we're just coming up on time, unfortunately. And I, I, I get the feeling we're only, only warming up in our conversation here now. <laughs> And uh, I, I, I think you're, you're really, you're, you're right. I think that that um, we do need to look at that enabling environment for for farmers and for for industry. And uh, I think where you have complex systems, you do need a more systems approach uh, to to support that change. Um, so, so Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I hope you're you're getting to enjoy Ireland and uh, that you're not rushing back to to Pennsylvania too soon. Um the um and I'm sure we'll 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 have you over again. I, I believe you're a, a frequent visitor to Ireland anyway. So uh we we, we look forward to uh, having you again maybe in, the, in at some point in the future. So so until uh to, for for today, Patrick, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh Pat, thanks for for helping out with questions. And I want to say a special thank you to Michelle Lavelle, who is working in the background here uh, on the, the technical side, and to Vaughan Maher, who is uh, on our production team. Next week, we'll be joined by Catherine Finney, uh, who is a project manager with uh, the Irish Breeding Curlew EIP. And uh, Catherine will be talking about the Irish Breeding Curlew EIP and uh, the impact that that's having on curlew population. So until next week, we hope you have a nice weekend and uh, stay safe. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.